I have with me the co-pastors of the Restoration Project, Josh James and Doug McKinney, who are in Salisbury, Maryland, the booming metropolis of Salisbury, Maryland. The capital of the Eastern Shore, as they say. Yeah. As if it isn't obvious to all of us, uh, tell us why you chose Salisbury to start a church. Well, Doug and I met in Salisbury. I don't want to tell your story, but the gist of it is Doug moved from somewhere in Texas across country to Salisbury to volunteer at a church where the pastor was uh, someone that Doug knew in the youth pastor circuit in Texas and Oklahoma. So Doug and I met at at a church where we had both partnered uh, with them to serve in different capacities. They're a church plant. I believe they'll turn six in January of 2017. Um, So that's where Doug and I met. I've grown up on the Eastern Shore uh, my entire life and have been pretty committed to the people here, know uh, a good bit about where they come from and the context And as I was thinking personally about planting a church, uh, I couldn't imagine doing it anywhere other than home. I'm not the type of person that can go off to Annapolis or Baltimore or D.C. or Philly or other big cities and and drum up business. Um, So I wanted to stay here uh, just because of the people. Uh, Also, at the time when Doug and I decided to plant, I was working at a local Christian school called Salisbury Christian School. Um, and a lot of my students there were not attending church. Their parents were not attending church. So we figured that if we planted something in Salisbury, that perhaps with some of the relationships that were being built, uh, we might be able to inspire some of these uh, folks to not only attend, but serve a local church. And we've been happy to see, see that kind of flourish over the last three and a half years. So let's get this straight. Doug, you came all the way across the country for a volunteer role? Yeah, I had uh, I had been a youth pastor in Oklahoma and Texas for about five years, um, and it was time to move on from that. And I had a connection uh, with the pastor of Remedy Church here in Salisbury uh, that had been trying to get me to move out here for um, six or eight years uh, first to be his children's pastor and at the church that he was at. And then when he planted uh, to come be a part of his church plant and the timing just was never right uh, until um, just over four years ago, I guess um, we came out to Salisbury for a visit and we loved it out here. Uh, we were driving back home and my wife, Rachel uh, and I were talking and I asked her, what she thought. And she said, I think we're supposed to move out there. And I said, I do too. So we, uh, saved up a little bit of money to get a big moving truck and moved out here with no place to live, no paying job, no nothing. Nothing says right timing, like no job (laughs) and no no money. (laughs) That's that's very true. It sounds like a it's like a common story for a lot of church like <laughs> the worst possible circumstances. But, hey, we were called to it. Mm-hmm. Hey, little did you know, Doug, that you would be meet- meeting literally the best set of hair in the fellowship. <laughs> Josh has the best hair of any of our church starters, without a doubt. Well, this may not be well known in the CBF or CBF yet, but Josh was once a hair model. 
That is true. No way. It's very true. Yes, my best friend's mom was a Paul Mitchell rep. Uh, that's a for the for the uninformed. That's a line of hair care products. Uh, she would take me from salon to salon to get my hair relaxed. <laughs> Because at the time, my hair was massive, and this was in a style where you would shave the back of your head up pretty high on the sides, and then you just let the rest of it kind of fall down like a surfer-type look. But mine was so thick and curly that it would just grow off of my head, and it was fashioned as a sort of a mushroom shape. So what we wanted to do was to tame that, you know, just to try to control it a little bit, <laughs> make it nice for the ladies. Uh, wow, the things that you learn... <laughs> uh, when you hop on a, on a video call, this is this is fantastic. Now, do you add, have you added that to your resume? Uh, no, oh. it, it might not be well known in CBF circles, but it's it's well known enough where I don't think I need to put that on on paper. Well, I'll uh, I'll definitely get that to our advancement team because you might start hair modeling for the fellowship. I don't I don't know. There's there's always possibility. I'm available for any sort of promotional material, brochures, or you know, we got GA coming up. So if you need to take a couple quick headshots and just put me on it, I'm I'm willing. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm willing. So. Well, you guys are you guys are doing something very interesting that not a lot of people uh, do, um, which is co-pastor a new church start. Um, oftentimes, it's a single church starter who builds you know a strong team around them with shared vision, shared interest. Um, but y'all decided to go at this together. So tell me a little bit more about that decision and what that process looked like. Well, I had been uh, scared to death of planting a church for some time. I'd say anywhere from eight to 10 years even. Uh, so I know that without Doug committing to this partnership, it might not have happened for me. I just needed that extra amount of accountability and encouragement and support. And man, for any church planter out there, you know that this is lonely, lonely work. And to have uh, another person to share an office with and to be in the midst of um, the mess with you, it's invaluable. Um, I sat across the table from three young college students a couple of days ago, and they're interested in team starting a church. Uh, and I'll be honest, Doug and I's experience, it hasn't been the easiest. Uh, it's been great as far as support and accountability, but just trying to manage the day-to-day -day with a co-pastor model, especially in the transition from both of us being completely volunteer, bivocational pastors to me now transitioning into more of a full-time uh, role in Doug, maintaining hours at the bank. It's been, it's been difficult. So it has a lot of strengths, but it's also not without its it's challenges. Another thing that's made it difficult, like you mentioned, uh, there aren't a whole lot of um, models out there for a co-pastor church other than uh, husband and wife co-pastors. And uh, since we didn't want to go that route, we didn't really have <laughs> <laughs> we didn't really have a, a blueprint to follow or a starting point to look at to see. Okay, well, this is what they do. Uh, we can we can start going that direction and then branch off of that however we need to. Uh, we didn't have that, so we were kind of uh, um, we were we were out there. Yeah, we were just trying to figure it out.
since this is fresh territory for, for both of you, uh, maybe share with us uh, some of the difficult aspects of co-pastoring um, and share some of the successful aspects of it. I think I could answer that by telling close to the same story. Um, Doug and I's skill sets complement each other very well. Um, I love to teach. I love to disciple. I love to pastor. I love to meet folks and just to, to be with them. Um, Doug loves to do those things as well, but he's also gifted in ways that I'm just not at all gifted. Uh, numbers, tech type stuff, the behind the scenes sorts of things that uh, are needed to run a church from day to day. Um, Doug's past experience with youth and kids ministry has been super helpful for us just kind of bringing our different strengths together. But in that, it's also been difficult for, I would say, for the church to be able to see us as a pure co-pastor model. It seems like there's just this deep-seated commitment in the minds of the people in the seats that whoever has the microphone and whoever is expositing scripture on a week-to-week basis, they function as the pastor and whatever anyone else is doing is a sub uh, a subpar task, pastoral task. And I think it's been really tough for us to sell the church at times on us having complete equality as far as leadership goes. And my say is not any more, any less than Doug's say. And just getting people on board with that has been has been a challenge, I think. Yeah, I don't think I could say it um, really any better than that. Uh, I guess it comes from traditionally how churches are. The the main pastor, the one you see up front, is who you equate with the church. So since Josh does the majority of the teaching, um, oftentimes he is seen as the pastor. Uh, but what I think is more important than that to me is w- – when we are meeting about things, when we are talking about um, issues, good and bad, uh, like Josh said, his voice is no more or no less uh, than my voice. Well, I think it's it's demonstrative of a larger church issue where people want to defer pastoral responsibility to the person who gets the paycheck. And man, we've really tried to, as church starters, you know that if it's just on the shoulders of one person, it is destined to fail. Um, We began as a house church and quickly grew to maybe 25 or so people within uh, a living room setting of a small home that seemed like, like a lot. And it was manageable to meet the needs of the people, to pastor people well, Now, it seems as though three and a half years into it, there's people on a week-to-week basis where they'll show up, and my only interaction with them is looking from the front of the sanctuary to where they are sitting in the seats, and then by the time that final amen is said, they're gone, and it's nearly impossible for me to introduce myself, make any sort of uh, deep connection with with people, and even if I was able to do that, we're totally outnumbered. Uh, and that that doesn't take a huge church to do that. Uh, you know, one person managing the, the spiritual care of even thirty or forty or fifty people, it can become quite uh, difficult at times. So we're hopeful to continue to reinforce 
you know, the priesthood of all believers and the pastoral responsibilities of members and regular attenders to, and just shepherd people well. And I don't think that that is us shirking our own responsibility. It's us pleading for help to do the difficult work of discipleship and mentoring, but even just living life together. It's, it's nearly impossible to live life well with a large number of people. So we, we need help in order to meet the needs of, of the folks that comprise the restoration project. I think you shared something that's not, you know, just centric to the restoration project. Um, this is something that um, sometimes we deal with, um, with the staffing dynamics of Mosaic. Uh, Amy Gallagher is our community life pastor, and I often refer to her as my pastor. And uh, I think oftentimes when people see someone as a part-time or full-time employee, they they see the weight and authority by which they, they carry. Um, but this is a shift and change that's happening in church across the board as ministers become uh, more bi-professional. Um, you might have one or two staff that are full-time and, and many others that are part-time. Uh, and and their time given to the church doesn't change the efficacy or the weight of their leadership. So I think this is new territory for not just new church starts, but traditional churches as well. Yeah, we talk about like a plurality of elders or leaders that, that really do try to share the load. Um, and as a as a young church plant, I mean, you struggle with identifying who those leaders are. You know, we try to take Paul's uh, admonition to be uh, patient with the laying on of hands pretty seriously. But at the same time, gosh, we just need so much help uh, in order to accomplish the things that we want to accomplish. And that's been, that's been difficult at times, not just sharing the, the pastoral load with, with meeting people where they are and having coffee, but also just doing ministry well together. And maybe this is where I'm fighting my own battles with the traditional model, because you look down the street at the church of 500 people who are doing these big sort of programs, and you get a little twinkle in your eye thinking, oh, that would be nice, because then people will see what we're doing. So right now, uh, we're, we're trying to figure out what it looks like for our church to be living missionally. Does that mean that the individuals in the church are out doing the ministry work of Jesus in whatever specific context they are? Does that mean that we're providing them with opportunities to partner together as a church? Is it a both and? Um, how do we fight that inner competition, uh, at least it, that takes root in my own spirit at times, to to be bigger and better and more legit in the eyes of the people that, that show up? Man, I don't, I don't know if this is turning into a rant, but, you know, you have those people that show up and they look around and they say, you guys aren't quite there yet. And then they leave not wanting to dig their heels in and build something with you to get to the to the next level, whatever that next level looks like. I think for us, it's just discipling people well, getting people excited to follow Jesus, getting uh, to see lives transformed. And we're trying to figure out how all of that works together. And I'll tell you right now, it, it doesn't work with just Doug or myself shouldering the entire load and trying to make it happen because we've been there and it is de- it's destined for failure each and every time. So, man, yeah, if, if the people in the seats could really get on board with just how important they are to shared mission and vision, uh, it could really revolutionize church ministry, not just with us, but 
probably with the church down the street of 500 people where a lot of them are just looking to the next person to do, to do some of the heavy lifting. One of the things that church starts face um, that also opens up to the topic around why we start churches in general um, is around the consumerism of the church. Um, you know, you, one of the things you're battling is you are in a, a town, a city that has a great number of churches um, where it's easy if you just want to consume the product that is worship or consume the product that is uh, programs and events. Uh, you don't have to invest. You can simply just go from church to church to church. You're, you're, you guys are kind of on the northern point of, of the south, but um, you know, the south is saturated in churches. So why should we start more churches? And, and what made you start more churches in Salisbury? Well, for us, like we said, we were already a part of a church plant. Uh, both of us came into that church plant with church planting or planting our own churches um, on, our, on our mind. And so being at um, Remedy Church just kind of reinforced that idea in our mind uh, that we did want to start a church. Now, um, starting another one here in Salisbury, Josh has already touched on that, why, why he uh, stayed here in Salisbury. For me, it was a combination of a couple things. Uh, first, the time that Josh and I had spent together at Remedy Church, uh, we felt like... Um, we felt like we could accomplish something uh, different, that, that God could use us to do something different, to start a church uh, that was a little different. And also, Rachel and I just really felt like Salisbury was where we were supposed to be. And until um, we felt like God was telling us something else, uh, we, we were going <laughs> to stay in Salisbury. So we, we found, um, at least I found, that your typical church— I'm going to put this. We found that we wanted to be the type of church that we would want to go to, uh, the type of church that would be um, open to having questions asked, open to people that are unsure about things, uh, open to people that have real problems and have real issues. And for the most part, we hadn't been able to find a church like that. So when we planned the restoration project, uh, and that's one of the things going back to the co-pastor model is Josh and I don't agree on everything. Um, Josh and I aren't always um, positive about the same things and um, and negative about the same things. So we we kind of model that from the top that we're it's okay uh, to have disagreements. It's okay to not be one hundred percent on the same page. Uh, because when it comes down to it, we're here for Jesus. Uh, we're here to hopefully point people towards Jesus. And we can do that even though um, we may not always agree on everything. We wanted to do church different. And in the beginning, that meant we read a formal liturgy. We had a call to worship and we had a confession. And we kind of brought back some ancient elements of the church for the last few centuries or whatever that we wanted to bring uh, to bear on a weekly service. We wanted to take communion. We wanted to receive communion every week together. We wanted to uh, go deep into scripture and we wanted to ask big questions. Um, and I think that has kind of morphed into <clears throat> a, a realization that what we're doing 
which is being open to new ideas, uh, not holding our theology with a really firm grip, especially with regard to the non-essentials. Um, we are creating safe space for people that have been hurt in the past by other churches, uh, by their unwillingness to engage big issues. And I don't mean big theoretical issues where we're debating minutia. I mean, people that have been ostracized and marginalized and put off um, and viewed as the other, and at times viewed as people that aren't even serving Jesus. And man, what we want to do is allow those people to, to come in and to hear the gospel and just to allow uh, the spirit to do whatever work the spirit wants to do in their lives. And I can go on record and say that that has been a difficult task for our particular context. Uh, we do live in a pretty rural area, pretty conservative area, and just the, the willingness to ask questions has been enough um, for us to be written off in the minds of, of some people. Uh, but, man, we're committed to it because we've seen the fruits of it and we've seen how it can transform people's lives and we're... We're hopeful uh, that it will also allow the gospel to be compelling either once again or for the very first time in the lives of certain people. Let's take that a, a little bit deeper. You know, for a lot of people, when they think about uh, a new church start, obviously uh, they think of worship like this, you know, out of the box or um, modern style of, of worship. But y'all are so much deeper than that. Uh, tell Tell me a little bit more about, you know, what your week-to-week, day-to-day ministry looks like with the people of the Restoration Project and, and the people of Salisbury. So what we try to do in service is, I hope this doesn't come off as arrogant, but what we try to do in service is push people to think through their faith in ways that they haven't uh, thought about previously. So one of the practical ways that that happens is we do incorporate really formal elements uh, in liturgy. So our call to worship, it's on the screen. Sometimes it has responsive elements to it, but it's something that has been written by other people that we kind of dip into and apply to our own context. And what you'll find when you're praying or uh, invoking a call to worship or a confessional response or a prayer for unity, the way that those things are worded Uh, It goes beyond the way that you might word them yourselves. And at times, I've been hearing a prayer that's being read, and you can just feel like that. I don't know how to describe it, but it's like that kind of, oh, my goodness moment, where it it makes you think about the ways that you uh, are being prejudiced or the ways that you are being selfish or the ways that you are not living up to the call that we have received, the ways that we're not forgiving people or the ways that we are living for our own uh, agendas. And I don't know if those are always things that I could construct in my own mind and in my own spirit. Uh, So hearing those and utilizing some of those resources have forced us to ask big questions of ourselves and our own life and practice. And hopefully the same is true of the way that, the way that we teach, um, 
we want to be super honest with, with the Bible. And granted, it's our interpretation of the Bible, and we're doing the best that we can. But we don't want to um, take away all the difficulties that are in the text. We want to expose them and see how they might push us to uh, understand Jesus in a different light or to live differently uh, because of it. So, for example, we're going through the book of Mark. And one of the themes that have, has been super prevalent to me in my preparation and also in just the teaching is just the way that Jesus was radically inclusive and the way that he was out on the margins and the outskirts and he was inviting unlikely people in. And I think it's only so much you can take of, of hearing Jesus doing these things over and over until you begin to self-assess and say, am I on the margins and the outskirts inviting people in or Am I a person of deep-seated prejudice that is disallowing a certain type of person from even having the opportunity to hear the gospel? Um, And we're hopeful that not just for the people in the seats, but even for our own lives, that we can demonstrate the fruit of being convicted and being challenged and allowing our theology to, to move and to breathe and, uh, hopefully helping us to see Christ in a new way so that we can be his hands and his feet in Salisbury. I feel like my answers are like 19 minutes long, by the way. Uh, More like 20 20 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) What's something that you've learned that you'd like to share with the established church? This is something that I would like uh, the local church to know about the Restoration Project. And I know that this isn't your primary audience, uh, but maybe for church starters that are listening to this or pastors of established churches with church plants nearby, um, I want to reinforce that we are partners. We are not in competition with you. Like we can talk about how the restoration project is different and how that legitimizes us being a church, a local church in Salisbury, Maryland, but we know full well that we cannot do this without the partnership of other local churches that might do things differently and believe things differently uh, and reach different people than we ever could. For example, there's a church down the street that has a really vibrant recovery uh, constituency, people that are struggling with real addictions uh, to substances are having needs met and they're being exposed to Christ in a way that they probably wouldn't with us because we're over on a different side of town doing really heady things like reading these trendy and uh, difficult prayers of confessions and we're dipping in and exposing doubt and all these things. And I think that 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 ministers to a certain demographic of people, but man, it's just one slice of the pie. And when churches learn to break down the walls that divide them, whether they're theological or practical or what have you, I think that we can not only create a united front that would destroy the stereotypes of the Christian church in America, but it would also allow us to be so much more impactful just on a a practical level. This is why we're committed to partnering with three other churches um, on the same street, as us. And that's the Seventh-day Adventist church, a Lutheran church and a church of the brethren. And we've got our own separate theological issues, but we're committed to just Jesus as we say often to one another. Um, And I think that that has created a witness and a testimony that 
speaks volumes to people. And I just wish that church starts could go into it without a competitive spirit and other established churches could learn to embrace these new upstart churches, not to see them as the entity that will steal their people, but as the, as the, the local church that is just trying to figure out how to love Jesus well in the same town as some of these other folks. I would say uh, going along with what Josh said, um, we have experienced a couple of established churches working with us, both of the buildings that we've met in. Um, we meet in churches on Sunday evenings um, and the church that we meet at now, plus the previous one, they've both said that they've tried for years and years to reach college students and they can't do it. So if we can do it, they want to help us out any way that we can. And that spirit of unity uh, has spilled over even more. We just met with the leaders of the uh, United Methodist Church that we meet in. Um, and they said that when people ask them if they have a college ministry or people ask them if they have a Sunday evening service that they could attend, they say, yeah, we support a church that meets here uh, that that has a lot of college students. We support a church that meets here on Sunday evenings. They even, I don't think I told you this, Josh, they even asked us to write a little uh, blurb that they could put in their newsletter thing for anybody uh, related to their church that couldn't make it on Sunday mornings that was looking for a church to go to, that there was a church that meets there on Sunday evenings. And it's been important to me and to us, I think, in those meetings that were not viewed as a ministry of that church. Uh, we are viewed as a separate church that is is trying to do the same thing that they're trying to do. We're just, for some reason, able to reach a different people group than they're able to. I think, too, um, that this whole idea of competitive spirits as well, it's easy for me to look on the outside and say, man, we've taken some shots from this church or that church, or we've you know experienced the the beauty of acceptance from this church or that church. I mean, I got to deal with my own junk too, because as a, as a church starter and you're, you're trying to build something that's sustainable, every person that leaves to go to a different place of worship, half of you is celebrating that. And the other half of you is lamenting that. So I, I know that this is not just a, Hey, organized local churches, you need to be better at accepting us. This also is a, a word for church planters to be, to be better at entrusting God to build your church, not you, not your programs, not your teaching, not your worship, but God building your church into whatever God wants that expression to, to look like. And that has been a tough pill for me to swallow when we see uh, people leaving or we see people um, partnering with, with other churches when we know full well that they could really really help us to to create something so that's a tough thing it's not um not being competitive and i think that a lot of ministers if they're honest they battle it uh, but i hope that we can battle it well together well gents we are so proud of you and honored to have you as part of the fellowship um so thankful for the work you're doing for the kingdom of god hey can i give a quick shout out to cbf real quick we're so thankful for cbf their partnership, their support, their accountability, their friendship has been invaluable to us as church starters. We are the sole 
CBF Church on the Eastern Shore, to my knowledge. I think you have to go across the bridge to Baltimore, D.C., Columbia area to find other churches. Um, but Trisha Miller Mannerin has been awesome with the Mid Atlantic CBF, and we have felt support from church starting friends from across the country, Michael Mills in Washington. Uh, and various others that have just been with us uh, for a long time. They're, they've become trusted friends, and we're thankful for you and for the work that you do. Your prayers uh, are coveted, and we are thankful. If you want to find more information on the Restoration Project, or if you're looking for a hair model, you can visit RestoreSBuy.org or find the Restoration Project on Facebook. Thanks for joining this Church Starts Conversation. For more information about church starting and other initiatives about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, visit cbf.net.